Well, thank you for your heartfelt singing this morning. I love that new Getty hymn that we just sang. Sometimes there's those songs that we sing in adoration to our God, and we just can't wait to be in our glorified bodies where we can attribute him the glory that... Because we are we're very inhibited, whether it be in skill or the passion of our own souls. And so there's coming a day when, in spite of the raspy throats and the, uh, the monotone tendencies and the inhibited passions that uh, will experience unhindered worship to our God. And so what a glorious time that will be. Let's look to the Lord in prayer and ask him to direct our thoughts in our study of scripture today. Father, what a holy and even a unique time of our service that uh, does not take place in many church houses today. We, we desire to hear from our God. When you, uh, you, we know that you speak through your word, so that as we obey the exhortation in Scripture to take heed to the public reading of Scripture, we seek to do that. We read the Bible together, and then we seek to explain it, what you mean by what you've said, and that, it would, that your spirit would lead us to the everyday application of being doers of these words that we study. We confess that this is your inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word. So use it in our lives that we might manifest your greatness, and your glory. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. We find ourselves in Ephesians 2 again this morning. I would invite you to join me there. I don't know what particular genres of literature you enjoy reading, but if you spend any time reading uh, a book especially if it takes place in the uh, medieval feudal system where either a king or a prince falls in love with a commoner or a peasant that he cannot marry. That builds the tension of the story because uh, uh, to get back in that time and understand that social system that they were locked in. Kings gave land to nobles and knights since they needed them for support, especially in military service. Uh, I was perusing through just this weekend uh, some of those convoluted systems where you start off with royalty that can consist of king, queen, prince, princess, queen, mother, and regent. You've got your your clergy consisting of pope, bishop, archdeacon, uh, abbot, prior, deacon, priest, monk, friar, cleric, vicar, Barber, surgeon, chaplain, confessor, scribe. In, no, uh, you, in the nobility, you've got uh, uh, the castle workers and the entertainers and military and peasantry. And, and lest, lest you think that that's for a different time and a different place than ours uh, and what we experience in today's world, you look at the social hierarchy that takes place in some countries of the world. In India, uh, for instance, there's four main classes uh, of course, one that doesn't even constitute a class is the untouchables. 
the untouchables, or out of caste and subordinate to everybody, your cobblers, your street sweepers, your, uh, your latrine cleaners, and then you start with the first suborder of uh, shudras, where you've got servants and, who are sub- subordinate to all the other three classes. You've got uh, vasheas, which is merchants and landowners. You've got Katriyas, which are the warriors, and up on the pinnacle of the temple, the Brahmins, your priests. Social structure is, is still taking place in our day in, in a different kind of pecking order that we might uh, elucidate a little bit this morning. It's part of sinful human nature to build barriers that shut out other people to make a judgment call based on somebody's appearance or what they sound like, what they look like, and in order to put them down, in order to make, give ourselves the appearance of being better. In the New Testament times, one of the greatest barriers was between slaves and freemen, especially uh, slaves and their owners. Those who were free looked down on slaves as being inferior Slightly above animals, but not much. Those who were, uh, a lot of the slaves looked on their masters with contempt and resentment. A lot of masters who were not uh, being gracious as Scripture dictated that they were to be to their slaves. Consequently, one of the the greatest problems that the early church faced and had to reckon with was getting Christian slave owners and Christian slaves to treat each other as spiritual equals. Though in society, there may be a pecking order, not in his kingdom. For the most part, women were even looked down upon as inferior beings. Husbands treating wives little better than they did their slaves. So when a wife became a Christian, her entire life, her outlook and her value system changed. Oftentimes, an unbelieving a uh, husband would uh, divorce her simply because she had made such a radical decision without his consent. And thus, Paul's admission in 1 Corinthians 7, if, if he leaves, let him leave. Now, Peter has some words, uh, you know, that uh, a woman's submission even comes into those that uh, are disobedient to the word. Because your, your value system changed. They're going to see in the quiet gentleness of your own spirit that there's been a transformation that took place. Look at the Greeks. The Greeks were so proud of their culture and supposed racial superiority that they considered everyone else to be barbarians, a belief which Paul will allude to in some of his epistles. The Greek language was considered to be the language of the gods. Remember uh, Herod making an oration in the book of Acts, right? And uh, God smote him because he didn't give him the glory. They said the voice of a God and not of a man. Cicero wrote, quote, as the Greeks say, all men are divided into two classes, Greeks and barbarians. End of story. (laughs) In his book, The Cross of Peace, uh, Philip Gibbs writes that the problem of fences has grown to be one of the most acute that the world must face today. Today, there are all sorts of zigzag and crisscrossing fences running through the races and peoples of the world. Modern progress has made the world a neighborhood, and God has given us a task of making it a brotherhood. In these days of dividing walls of race and class, 
We must shake the earth anew with the message of Christ in whom there is neither bond nor free, Jew nor Greek, Scythian nor barbarian, but all are one. This next section of Ephesians 2 that we find ourselves in, verses 11 to 22, and the previous one are are, are somewhat parallel. In the past, you see nothing but uh, dead sinfulness that we looked at last week. Bondage. Separated from the covenant of promise and God, which he'll... uh, He'll uh, elongate uh, our understanding in that, uh, the particulars of that today. In present, uh, he says, as you look at your present status, you're belonging to the people of God, which is made up of Jew and Gentile, and you're reconciled to God and near to both God and fellow slaves of Jesus Christ together. So not only does God take those who are dead in trespasses and sins and give them life, This text before us emphasizes nearness to both God and God's people. Individuals who have received God's gracious salvation are not left alone, but are brought into union with Jesus Christ and other believers. It's a corporate solidarity, which he'd made some reference to at the end of chapter 1, if you recall what he said in verses 22 and 23, that he put all things in subjection under his feet, gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so in this section here, he's going he's gonna to talk more about what this body looks and acts like. The book of Ephesians gives us some rich theology, beloved. In chapters 1 and 2, 1 through 3, and the ramifications uh, uh, the the uh, practical theology in chapters 4 to 6. Last week we were in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, where Paul gave us a rich theology of sin, which is harmartiology. The, also soteriology, a lot about salvation. Here in verses 11 to two, uh, 22, it's more of a robust ecclesiology and what the church is like this new entity that was formed and fashioned. Both passages, both sections of chapter 2, highlight significant uh, our understanding of, uh, of the church, both in our, our former predicament that we find ourselves in and God's merciful and costly intervention in the nature of our new status as the people of God. So, so read with me, uh, follow along as I read for us in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you, were, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. 
and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Let me invite you to... Notice three instructions for us to abide by those who have been made alive in Christ. These are three apostolic dictates coming in the form of an exhortation and an assertion and some inference. These are going to be three helps to understanding the glorious nature of our new status with God as His people. Notice this exhortation in verses 11 and 12. He says, remember your plight. So that's the, that's the banner in our notes over verses 11 and 12. Remember your plight. He calls them to remembrance, both in this verse and in the next. Remember your situation before Jesus. And then he contrasts it with the blessings that they now experienced. That's a good practice for believers to go through. To think frequently and deeply about the condition that we were in without Christ, and then the glorious transformation that's been wrought in our hearts as we are being transformed from one level of glory to another. Specifically, the the change in relationship that he's going to be highlighting here is the relationship between Jew and Gentile and closeness in Christ in relation to God. So it's a nearness on on both dimensions, both vertically and horizontally. You notice that he addresses them here in verse 11 as the Gentiles in the flesh, those whom the Jews called uncircumcision. So this call to remembrance is particularly for for the Gentiles in Ephesus, those known as the uncircumcision. So whether they be Greeks or Romans or Egyptians or Parthians or Anatolians, the following list that that he's going to give of their former condition kind of stands in contrast to another list Paul gives of the Jews and all that they had in God. If you wanted to put your finger here and go back with me to Romans 9, is that contrasting list. So, as he's going to expose all of the nothingness without Christ in uh, Ephesians 2, in Romans 9, he elucidates to the Romans some of the the blessings of salvation and the advantage that the Jews enjoyed. In Romans 9, verses 3 to 5, Paul says, I could wish that that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Notice that designation, an Israelite. To be an Israelite is to have all this, to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises 
whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all. God bless forever. Amen. So in stepping back into, into kind of Jewish sandals to recognize, this is, this is what adds to the height of why Jesus is, uh, would give scathing denunciations to his people. It's like, to you we're given everything. Everything. Go, go back with me to Ephesians 2, if you would, please. So the, the specification we find here in Ephesians 2 for the Gentiles, the uncircumcision, is to draw out that in your former condition, without, before Christ intervened in your lives, you had a twofold alienation. The first being social, and the second being spiritual. In their social alienation, for thousands of years, they suffered hostility to illustrate the plain fact of the matter that, uh, yeah, we got a far worse alienation. Jews considered Gentiles outcasts, objects of derision and reproach. But that wasn't as bad as it was. It's worse when you look at it spiritually speaking. Spiritual alienation, which was talked about in our deadness, verse 1 of, of uh, last week's text. But here, he's in this next section, he's going to delineate in five different ways. As the uncircumcision, those that are outside the covenant nation Israel, they lacked five privileges of the Jews. Notice, notice the first one that he mentions there. Separate from Christ, verse 12. Remember, so, so in verse 11, he says, Remember formerly, you Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by those that are called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. And here in verse 12, he calls into remembrance again, and, and he list, lists five reasons. You are separate from Christ. No Savior, no Deliverer, without divine purpose or destiny. Now, that's not to say, as we contrasted this with, with the Romans passage, that's not to say that all Israelites experienced salvation blessings. Not all Israel was Israel. Though to the nation were given the promises and through the, their ethnicity would come the, the Messiah. But not all of them. You, you look at a, a lot of uh, the Old Testament accounts of, of Israel that go through religious motions, but their heart was cold to God and they were rebellious. But that's exactly the condition that Paul is bringing to the table here with the Gentiles. You are separate from Christ. No national hope of Messiah that the Jews celebrated. Number two. After the comma comes excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. The chosen people who experienced unique blessing and protection of God. They'd been a, a theocratic nation. Chase that down in Romans 9. These, were, these people were aliens. They were estranged. They were excluded from all those promises that God gave His people. Excluded from the life of God is how Paul will put it in chapter 4 in verse 18. Excluded from the life of God. He uses this language in, uh, to the Colossians in Colossians 1.21. When, when they look at their past and their history, he says to them that you were 
formerly alienated. They were separated. So they experienced this, uh, this spiritual separation from God. You know, there was some good news for the Gentile in, in the Older Covenant. You, know, you, could, you could become a proselyte. You could, you could kind of tap into the promises of God given to another people, and that, you know, their God, Yahweh, could become your God. But that wasn't the general tenor of which, which people pursued. Gentiles as a whole were excluded. And as, as if that, those two features aren't bad enough, notice the next phrase that he tells us there in, in, in verse 12. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Look at all the covenants that God gave. God promised. God bonded himself by his own word. To, he promised a land. He promised a priesthood. The Jews, he promised a people. A nation, a kingdom, and a king. But to be a Gentile was to be deprived of direct participation in God's covenants that he obligated himself to. You look at the covenants like the Abrahamic, or the the Palestinian, the Davidic, the New Covenant. all All those promises from God assuring Israel a national existence, a land, a king, and spiritual blessings... To be a Gentile wasn't have any of that. A fourth feature that he lists here in verse 12, having no hope for Messiah. You know, the, the Jews had been living in expectation ever since Genesis 3.15. God promised a one, a seed that is going to crush the head of the serpent so that you know, what was lost in the first Adam will be gained in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. They had no hope to be a Gentile. Throughout the ages of the Old Testament, faithful Jews would await God's anointed king who would come and he would reign over the world in righteousness and with divine authority. That was given to the Jews, though. And as if the bad news doesn't get bad enough, a fifth feature there in verse 12 without God in the world. You know, they had a lot of demigods, a lot of false gods, but they didn't bow to the true God because they didn't want His reign and His rules. And lest we... Uh, Lest we think that uh, any of the Gentiles of that day are worse than the Gentiles of our day. Uh, Again, uh, relying on uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, Romans 1 was fresh on my mind as I was going through this. You you remember Romans, Romans 1, 18 to 26? Listen to these, the appropriateness of this discussion to the Gentiles that are given characteristics of our own day and age, so that the bleakness of their history would be the bleakness of our recent history, and the glory of God's grace in intervening our lives in salvation would be exceedingly great as it was to them. In Romans, Romans 1 and 
verse 18, we're told that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Men who are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. That's exactly what the Gentiles were in the practice of doing. Whether they cover it up with religiosity to their gods, their false gods or not, they were suppressing what they knew to be true. They had the same creation and the same conscience that Paul writes about in Romans. They had the same witness that we have. That which is known about God, verse 19, is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So even though to be a Gentile was mean, meant that you're separate, separate from Christ and you're excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, you're strangers for the covenants of promise, there's no hope and without God in the world. There was no excuse. No excuse. Even though they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks, but they came futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. You know, whether that be the false god uh, of Dagon that would fall on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. So what God, what's God's response? Verse 24. God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshipped and served the creator, creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper." You, know, you look at the litany of lists that follows after. And so that as, as the Gentiles before Christ would unpack the wretchedness of their own souls and their need for Christ, their need for the Savior, their need for that new covenant that was given to the other people, so it is in our day. They were in a desperate condition a situation having no meaning, no hope, no purpose, no direction in life. Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, especially the Gentiles, remember it and remember it well. How bad of a cesspool of a situation God redeemed you from. And these next set of verses, going back to Ephesians 2, verses 13 to 18, here is his assertion. His assertion is recognize your nearness. This is the second call to remembrance. Remember or recognize your nearness. Notice how verse 13 begins, that little contrast but. So after you remember how bad it was without God, without hope, without Christ, without the covenants of promise... But now in Christ, so this is present status of being in Christ, 
They've repented. They place their faith in, in the one true God, the Savior of sinners. But now in Christ, you who are formerly were far off have been brought near. Isn't that glorious? This is not just true of Gentiles. And not just true of Jews of Paul's day, but everyone who trusts Christ alone for salvation has been brought into spiritual union and intimacy with God. And so as we remember our past and the desperateness of the condition, we look at the present. Those who were far off are brought near. We now experience a closeness to God. It's a reversal of the plight because of the benefits of the death of Messiah. And so Paul firmly roots peace with God and peace with one another in the work of Jesus Christ. Notice how he weaves it through the text. In verse number 13, he says it's by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, it's by his flesh. And verse 16, through the cross. So he gets all the merit for all the working of this nearness, this intimacy of fellowship. You were far off, but now you're brought near to God. God didn't move a bit, but he stopped you in the midst of your rebellion against him in the deadness of your own soul. He breathed life and he drew you near to him. What a glorious picture. And not only were you separate from, now you're in Him, in Christ Jesus. We've already made note before that uh, that one phrase, in Christ, is one of the biggest phrases in Ephesians. To be in Christ is to have everything. To be outside Him is to have nothing. This is a crucial and pivotal text in Ephesians. Paul, Paul is used to... Uh, he uses it to speak of being united with Christ in a profound, dynamic relationship that not only extends to our present experience with the risen Christ, but it reaches back to an objective participation with Him in His death, resurrection, and exaltation. He did that back in verse 6. Notice the connection he made back in verse 6. When God lavished his, love upon, his great love upon us while we were dead in our transgressions, verse 6, he says, He raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So it's already been before our attention. He's already been making this point. So at the beginning of, uh, of verse 13, we're, we're, we're in Christ... In the beginning of verse 14, notice that uh, he himself is our peace. Uh, when, it, when you find this emphatic way of saying things, it, it kind of seems redundant in our language, but this is how the authors of Scripture will, will uh, place the uh, emphasis on the right syllable for us to understand. He himself, the strongest way possible to state that Christ alone is the believer's source of peace. It's found nowhere outside of him. That is why when Isaiah the prophet writes about the coming Messiah that the Jews, the, the people of promise, were looking forward to coming, would identify his name as being the prince of peace, a designation for coming Messiah. So he himself is our peace. 
And you notice what he did. He made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. The barrier of the dividing wall. There's some debate as to exactly what is being referred to here. It's only mentioned here in the New Testament. So what are we to make of it? Some, some would say that it's the curtain in Jerusalem's temple between the holy place and the holy of holies. Some others believe it's uh, referring to the fence, quote-unquote, around the law mentioned by the rabbis. But it's probable, since he's going to be mentioned in the temple again, a different temple, that temple metaphor is, is worked in this text, so it's pro- probably better to be referring to the wall that was in the temple to partition off, since he's talking about Gentiles and Jews. There was a wall that... Uh, uh, partitioned off the court of the Gentiles from the areas only accessible to Jews. It was four and a half feet high, called the Sorig, that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Israelites and the court of the women and kept Gentiles from ever coming near the sanctuary. We've got to keep the outsiders out, was the mentality. Josephus says that there were 13 stone inscriptions erected at various points on this uh, that, that warned Gentiles not to enter under penalty of death. Two of these inscriptions have been discovered. The text of the inscription reads this, No foreigner is to enter within the forecourt and the balustrade around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. So, they were always on the out, even though they were coming to the temple for worship. Jesus obliterated it. And verse verse 15 expands the thought. He says, "It's, it's by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself, that, that himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So he abolishes in his flesh the enmity. It's a difficult text to translate, especially with the legal terminology that's used here. When you use the word abolish, that conveys complete destruction, decimation. But the term katargeo can readily mean cause something to lose its power or effectiveness. Perhaps a better word to uh, translate and, and to use as a synonym here would be nullify, since it's a legal test, uh, uh, legal uh, terminology here. Uh, legally null and void is what Jesus stamped it. Through his death, Christ abolished. Old Testament ceremonial laws and feasts and sacrifices which uniquely separated Jews and Gentiles. The law, specifically in regard to regulating the covenant relationship, came to an end. A new era has begun. Now we've got the presence of the Spirit that signals the era of the new covenant. You know, if you're taking notes, here's where you'd put a cross-reference to Ezekiel 36 down, the promise of the new covenant that is begun. You know, and if, if you were to read especially verses 22 to 36, 
Read that as if you were one of those Jews throughout the centuries who's been waiting for Messiah to come and the land, looking forward to fulfillment. The law was nullified in Christ. Gentile is now in a place where they experience spillover blessings from this work of Christ, of, reconcil- uh, of, of abolishing in his flesh the enmity of the law, that there should be no hostility. And he says that he, he did so to, to make the two one new man, one new man. Now he refers to something totally unlike what it was. It's different in kind and quality. We read something of this when somebody comes to faith in Christ, don't we, in Scripture? That if any man be in Christ, is a new creature. It's totally different. The person's no longer a Jew or a Gentile, but they're simply a Christian. But that's not the new man Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the church, because he's going to use these different metaphors of the church throughout these verses various terms for this new entity, a whole new spiritual enterprise and entity. It's a new class of humanity, a new corporate identity. John Stott titled his commentary on the book of Ephesians, God's New Society. And that kind of captures the thought here, God's New Society. And he says in there, alongside his destruction of these two enmities, Jesus has succeeded in creating a new society, in fact, a new humanity in which alienation has given way to reconciliation and hostility to peace. And this new human unity in Christ is the pledge and foretaste of that final unity under Christ's headship to which Paul had already looked forward to in chapter 1 and verse 10. And notice the transition that he starts making here in the next verse, in verse 16. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. That this nearness to God, access to God, though it's vital and the emphasis of Scripture is not the only spiritual nearness and reality to be had. It is to understand that as Jews and Gentiles are brought to God through Christ, they're also brought to each other. The picture here is on a, in a pyramid. So next week in the, the marriage conference I'm doing, I, I often will in marriage conference, uh, marriage counseling, talk about you know, as husband and wife are pursuing Christ, pursuing God, pursuing His kingdom, you naturally are, come together. It's, it's an overflow of becoming more like Christ. And so as the Lord is drawing people to faith in Christ, it's automatically drawing others near to each other. That's the emphasis he's got here, brought together with each other. He says he, to, to reconcile them both in one body to God. So as Jesus is on the cross dying the death that he did not deserve, but we did, being a curse for us, He's going to draw to himself, draw them near. 
He absorbed the wrath of the Father to satisfy divine justice and make reconciliation with God a reality. But here he's talking about even this reality of Jew and Gentile coming near. Fast forward to contemporary ministry. Here's the rub that I'd probably have with a lot of this racial reconciliation emphasis of our day is that it's not an emphasis in Scripture. To be reconciled is to be reconciled. We're not reconciling. It's already reconciled. It's a done deal. It's not to be Jew or Gentile. It's to be Christian. It's to be a saint. It's to be in Christ. This togetherness. There is no redoing what God has already done in reconciling us to one another as He reconciled us to Himself. One put it this way, one sign and wonder, biblically speaking, that alone can prove the power of the gospel is that of reconciliation. Hindus, you remember the, the social structure that I referenced in, the, in the, uh, the opening remarks? Hindus can produce as many miracles as any Christian miracle worker. Islamic saints in India can produce and duplicate every miracle that's been produced by Christians, but they cannot duplicate the miracle of black and white together of racial injustice being swept away by the power of the gospel. We don't have to redo what God's done. We simply need to remember, as Paul exhorts them to do, not just our past, our sordid past that it might be. He continues on. Through him, verse 18, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. It's to be in Christ, not our own identity of Jew or Gentile. We both. Neither has a monopoly on him. Equally granted right and access by faith the moment you believe. You're given, given the, the resources of the Trinity. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit. You're welcome to come to the Father with boldness at any time. I trust that doesn't get old to you. That you're not calloused in thinking about that glorious reality. So there are, there are four ways emphasized by Paul that Jew and Gentile have been united. Notice again, uh, reverse here. Back in four, uh, verse 14, the two are made one. The two are made one. Verse 15, one new man created out of the two. How many made out of the two? One. Third way, in verse 16, one body, both reconciled. In verse 18 that, that I just read for us again, both have access by one spirit. Nothing could be clearer than that this new union replaces enmity. If there's enmity, if there's division, if there's schism, Christ isn't exalted. Let's go back to the Bible and remember. And Paul then, uh, to, to give the, the third section here, the third point, verses 19 to 22, by inference, embrace your inclusion. Embrace your inclusion. Notice that you're no longer strangers and aliens. That's not your designation, verse 19. That's not your identity. You are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. 
The kingdom's made up of people from all time that have trusted him. No strangers, no foreigners, no second-class citizens. All saints of all time, though it doesn't mean that the church inherits the blessings promised to Israel. I give you a, just a few thoughts and uh, you know that uh, in this new entity of the church it doesn't do away with all that God promised to the other people, the Jews. First reason I'd say in context Paul discusses one new man in verse 15 and one body verse 16. Gentiles are not incorporated into Israel, but both who believe are incorporated into one new humanity. You notice that? There's not a, well, well, you uncircumcised Gentiles, you're good enough to be incorporated into us Jews. That's not the dynamic that takes place here. Second of all, Paul specifically states that Gentiles are incorporated with God's people and are God's Household, verse 19. Look at how verse 19 ends. As he is identifying them as fellow citizens with the saints and God's household. Notice he didn't say Israel. If he meant that they became Israel, he'd say so. He didn't say so. He'd have named both groups as he did back in verse 11, but he did not. And thirdly, in this, in this new dynamic relationship that according to verse 20 has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. That began on, on Pentecost, not the Old Testament. It distinctly began when the church was born. This new entity, this body, this new temple in the Lord. So they're not just citizens in the holy city, but members of the household of God, members of the king's family. The father set his love upon you, just like he does for his son, Jesus Christ. That sounds so good and too good to be true. It almost sounds like blasphemy, if, if it's not what, it, what Scripture attested to, that you know, to be in Christ is to, is to have the same love from the Father as the Son has. But that's exactly what Paul had taught us back in chapter 1, verse 5, when he predestined us to be adopted sons through Jesus to himself according to the kind intention of his will. So that same infinite love for the perfect spotless Son of God is ours in Christ together in the household of God. This new entity, this new society, as I just read for us in verse 20, is, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. These are those who penned Scripture and gave divine revelation of God as they authoritatively spoke the Word of God to the church before the New Testament was completed. You notice that, that last metaphor he uses for this new entity, the church. This holy temple in the Lord, verse 21. Holy temple. A whole new day has dawned since the old covenant worshiper came to the temple to worship. It was apropos for the apostle to take off in that same kind of language this new temple, quote-unquote, comprised of a redeemed people, not made of stones and mortar, 
is, is not limited to Jerusalem. There's no animal sacrifices that take place because Christ himself gave his blood. There's no walls of separation. Gentiles have equal access to God. Matter of fact, the only, the only sacrifice in this holy temple of the, of the Lord is a, a sacrifice of praise offered by sincere worshipers each Lord's Day. So, beloved, think about how God's plan of redemption and message of salvation came through the Jewish nation. Didn't mean that all the Jews were redeemed, but only that the message had come through them. God made the nation, God gave them the promises, and included the promise of Messiah. That did not mean that there was any right for the attitude that Jonah had when he went to Nineveh. No right for the despising of Gentiles. God's mission and focus has always been the world. The messengers that get that message out are, Paul will say in in the book of Romans, have beautiful feet. Beautiful feet are those who bring good news of good things, Romans 10, 15. We're ambassadors. We've been drawn out of the world unto Christ together. So revel in the fact that God is near. Paul's not saying here that Gentiles have a more privileged position than the Jews either. Both groups being reconciled now have access to the Father. The theology of nearness needs to be encountered by us. It needs to be understood by us and it needs to be embraced by us. Nearness to him and nearness to each other, as he emphasizes here in Ephesians 2. We see this nearness theology as an experience of Israel under the Old Covenant. In Psalm 148, in verse number 14, we read that he has lifted up a horn for his people, praise for all his godly ones, even for the sons of Israel, a people near to him, praise the Lord. The people of Israel were called a a people close to, to his heart in Psalm 119, 151. You're near, O Lord. And because of this, the Lord is near to all who come upon him. Psalm 145, 18. His salvation is near to those who fear him. Psalm 85, 9. And the Lord, here's a precious one when you're going through the difficult times of life to recall God's nearness in the situations of life, Psalm, Psalm 34, 18, that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Nearness needs to be a remembered doctrine in our lives. There's a much greater nearness in the new covenant because of the presence of the Spirit and the work of Christ who brings peace. There is a new temple The church being a home for God, which he inhabits. Paul had anticipated this nearness in his opening eulogy that he chose us for himself, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1. And we being his possession, verse 14, and us being his glorious inheritance, verse 18. So being a Christian, being in Christ... 
Being redeemed and forgiven and in Christ is to have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's entering a dynamic relationship with Christ, giving us access to the Father, a closeness to Him, which unsaved man cannot realize and do not comprehend. It is a peace that passes all human comprehension. This understanding only grows commensurate with our understanding of the desperateness of our condition of deadness and depravity and alienation that uh, we looked at last week and this week in the opening points. We can see a little of how exceeding the good news was to the Gentiles. I'll just give you one last example of how huge this was. For centuries and centuries... If you were to look at Philo's account of the Gentile uprising against the Jewish people in the city of Alexandria in the mid-first century and the violence surrounding it, or how about the ill feeling that eventually led Claudius to banish all Jews from Rome just a few years before Paul came for his three-year ministry at Ephesus in Acts 18. Big deal. God created an integrated community of Jew and Gentile, believers, devoted to the worship of the one true God of the Jews. And within this cultural context of tension and hostility, it's nothing short of miraculous. But that was God's design, not man's. Christ had reconciled both groups in one unified body, Jesus himself, the source of their peace. So in this multicultural city with, with variety of indigenous people from Anatolia, Romans from Italy, Egyptians, Persians, settlers from Greece, and many others, and add to all of those different ethnicities the economic divide ranging from, from wealthy urban elites to the many slaves, some say there's up, upwards of a, a third of the population of the empire was slaves. And the numerous peasants that you factor into the picture. The contemporary church is built on the same foundation and worshiped the same Prince of Peace as they did. Those original readers of this letter to the church at Ephesus. God's church needs to get past the racism needs to get past nationalism and economic pride because the church itself is countercultural. It is above culture. Yeah, we read the Tower of Babel uh, uh, account th- this morning, and we know all our missionaries have to learn their languages in the different countries now because of uh, man's pride. We need to embrace this togetherness. And I think... One of the grandest object lessons Jesus ever gave on how the church is to be a testimony of this was in John, John 13 in the upper room when Jesus gave them every opportunity to go pick up the towel and wash each other's feet and he himself did it. And he gives them the, the command in verse 33, love one another even as I have loved you. He says in verse 35, By this shall all men know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So in a manner, Jesus shows us that love powerfully adds to our credibility factor and our witnessing. So as we embrace this nearness and this culture of togetherness as we worship and serve the same God 
together, that that would grow, that that would be enhanced as we search and submit to passages such as Ephesians 2. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we could look at so many other uh, examples in Scripture. We could uh, visit with Jonah as we have before about the hostile attitude that many Jews would have to the uncircumcised Gentiles. We could visit with James in his, the fifth chapter of his epistle when he addresses the rich who despise the poor. Or even in the shepherding responsibilities of the local church when Peter exhorts us of what servant leadership looks like and it does not look like those who lord it over others. So we are to clothe ourselves with humility. Lord, did you weave this passage into the fabric of our souls that we would extrapolate its truth and what it will look like and sound like as we serve the one true God together who has brought us near to himself. Enhance biblical unity around the same truths, the same doctrine that we believe together as we've covenanted with you together in this local church. Use it for the advancement of your fame and the evangelistic fervor of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.